Father, we rejoice in you this day and we thank you for your majesty and your power and dominion that is evident in this world that you've created and in redemption which you have planned and designed and purposed and accomplished. And Lord, the work that is ongoing and ransoming for yourself a people from this whole world, the nooks and crannies of the nations, Lord, are being subdued under our Savior's feet. And so we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us like the children of old in deliverance from our sin through the wilderness, Lord, now of sanctification unto the promises of new and eternal life, Lord. We thank you, God, that we have experienced your power even more miraculously evident in saving us from our sins than in moving heaven and earth to bring a people across the Red Sea. We give you praise, Lord, because you alone have done this by the sovereign power of your Spirit's work in each of the confessing believers in this room today. As we open now your Scriptures that explain to us in depth and glorious detail the things of you, Lord, and the glories of the Gospel, I pray that you would tune our hearts to hear the sound of heaven, that you would cause in us, Lord, uh, an appreciation and a retention of the revelation of your holy word, and that you would equip us to proclaim, Lord, with the psalmist, the glories of our God. Thank you for this time we have together. We pray that you would maximize it for the use of your kingdom and the spread of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a glorious opportunity to join together in worshiping our God and hearing His Word proclaimed. Turn with me in your scriptures to Psalm 66 this morning. And today's message will be under the title, History Future. History Future, the Psalms declare in expectation, in prophetic tones, particularly in this example today, that history is written by the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of all things. And so we look forward to a certain future. The history is not uncertain as man would, in his humanistic presuppositions, would like you to assume that he is its author as it unfolds or that time and chance conspire to create an uncertain tomorrow. These things are not true. In fact, the future is secure and established in the sovereign decree of God. And so we read bits of history future in the scripture when the window of God's revelation is open to us to see his plans to come. And so to his scriptures we turn. Out of reverence and fear for God's scriptures, would you stand with me this morning with your Bible open to Psalm 66 as we hear from these pages the word of Almighty God. Today's Chapter, again, in Psalm 66 is under the heading, the title, To the Choirmaster, a song, a psalm. Verse 1, we have the holy word of God. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him. 
who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. Verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, And high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 66 is a striking example of the grand and glorious expectations of the Psalms. While the gospel mechanics, if you will, understood at the time of its authorship, were relegated, restricted to type and shadow within the national boundaries, more or less, of Israel, nevertheless, songs like this prophetically reached and surpassed that experience They reached out far beyond the mere ceremonial worship of ethnic or even the converted Jews that would gather at one physical geographic location in Mount Zion, as we see it pictured in Jerusalem. These songs would reach prophetically far beyond into the distant future, into history future, envisioning through the words of the psalmist and proclaiming A glorious time where glory, the glory of the Lord, is celebrated over the entire globe. Furthermore, Psalm 66 could serve as a curriculum, if you will, outlining for us a global gospel education program. These words instruct the ends of the earth through the immortal words of Scripture. They are an instruction for the ends of the earth to behold the exploits of the eternal God, that they may join the universal song of the redeemed in repentant praise. The themes and example of Psalm 66 ought to inspire the prayers, the praise, the proclamation, and the patience of the saints who sung them then and the saints who worship now. Yes, even us, the New Testament church. Psalm 66 ought to, saint, inspire your prayers, your praise, your proclamation, and your patience. Psalm 66 ought to, furthermore, remind us of the indispensable value of appreciating and processing, that is, knowing and loving deep theological truth. Our growing knowledge of the Lord 
and His truth is meant to blossom, to flower as the growing subject of our worship. And this worship, in turn, is more fitting for the object of our praise, the triune God of Scripture. Some may wonder what value there is in digging deeply into the riches of deep and profound truth in Scripture. Psalm 66 reminds us of one of the values of setting our discipline and our mind to be transformed by its renewal through reading and understanding the sometimes complicated, the sometimes foreign, but beautifully orchestrated, intricately proclaimed truth of God's Word. And that value in Psalm 66 is evidenced in the following. The more we know about the Lord, the more we can proclaim about Him in worship, and thus the more fitting our worshipful prayers, praise, proclamations, and even attitudes like patience are before the Lord. Do you love the Lord, saint, in this room? Every true saint would say yes, and a thousand times yes, and may He give me more love for Him still. There is a means, I am proclaiming to you this morning, of more love for Him still, to offer to Him in grateful, overflowing praise and thanks, and that is a deeper knowledge and appreciation of His truth, His Scripture, that you can echo to Him, saying, you are glorious because you have done this. You are glorious because you will accomplish thus. You are glorious because your word has proclaimed the end from the beginning in writing down in prophetic detail through the ceremonies of old, the following, so on and so forth, through all of Holy Scripture. Do not sell yourselves short from the language of powerful, glorious praise in settling for a level of scriptural understanding and then considering this plateau is sufficient. Dig deeper, saint. Stretch yourself. Pray that the Holy Spirit would add to your faith understanding and glean the precious treasures of Scripture because as you do, it gives you more to your praise. It informs your confession, your profession, your proclamation, your testimony so that the Lord is more, that much more glorified in what you echo of His works His word, His virtues, His attributes, His characteristics, His power, His exploits, the glorious things that He has done. So let us this morning take advantage of this opportunity and considering Psalm 66 to do just that. Let us learn, let us love, and let us laud Him because He is worthy. Here's a heading for you and four sections that we'll consider Psalm 66 in today. Our heading is, Psalm 66 prepares us to realize, celebrate, and proclaim the, excuse me, the ideal relationship of, then four relationships. Number one, the world toward God. Psalm 66 prepares us to realize the relationship of the world toward God, the ideal relationship that is. Secondly, Psalm 66 prepares us to realize, celebrate, and proclaim the ideal relationship, that is the relationship that God has prescribed through His Word of God to His people. Thirdly, Psalm 66 prepares us to realize the relationship of the believer toward God. And finally, 
the believer toward the world. This, I submit to you, is the general framework of four sections in this psalm. So let us consider the first. That is the world toward God. What is the prescribed, the ideal relationship of the earth and its peoples to the Lord, their Creator? Listen again, Psalm 66, 1. Shout for joy to God, who? All the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. This I submit to you in verse 1 and 2 is the ideal relationship that the peoples of the earth ought to have with God their Creator, to shout His glorious praise, to worship Him, and to offer to Him the glory due His name. Verse 3, say to God, so this is addressed to all the earth, all the peoples, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. And thus the introduction becomes more apparent, does it not? When the world knows the deeds of the Lord, they therefore can echo to Him His deeds. How can you do so if you're ignorant, if you're blind, if you're deaf and you're dumb to the things of God? Yet the call, the ideal relationship of the creature to the Creator is to echo, to say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Verse 3 continues, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praise to your name Say law. We are getting a glimpse, I submit to you, into history future. There will be a recreation of this world, so to speak, in the new heavens and new earth, a regeneration of things that will be set in order according to God's redemptive plan. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Psalm 66 opens up proclaiming the scope of God's plan. For the redemption, a redemption not just of individual souls, which we celebrate and represent here today, but indeed a redemption of all the earth. Let us not be so short-sighted as to miss the glorious purposes of God, which will unfold and fulfill prophecy someday so that the words of Psalm 66 are true in the experience of everyone alive in this glorious environment singing with one accord and shouting for joy to Him from the ends of the earth, from every tribe that has ever existed, the glories and praises of our great God. Now this truth is reiterated and expanded and applied in the work and ministry of Christ in the New Testament as well. And Romans 8 proclaims these truths. As we read of them, we pick up in Paul's explanation in verse 18. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What glory is Paul speaking of? I submit to you it's the glory that Psalm 66 celebrates in the song. Listen, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Reminds us of the theme of our message from last week, does it not? The theme of faith. What is faith? We ventured a summary, a biblical definition, I trust, but faith is the uh, reliance on or belief in and acting on the power and promises of God. This inward groaning for a future yet unrealized is celebrated in Psalm 66. Every one of you mothers in this room who has bore children, I'm sure that one of the things my wife has shared as much with me that gives you endurance through that time of nine months of difficulty, the gestational period, is the joyful expectation of what that birth will give, the immeasurable gift of brand new life. Focusing on that allows you to endure. And in the same way, for those of us who have not yet realized all the promises of salvation such that they have not as of yet re-established a world without pain, suffering, or any vestige of sin, and perfect unified praise of the Holy God, we still wait for that yet. The joyful expectation that this, if you will, gestational period will produce in the future allows us to endure with patience. And Psalm 66 celebrates that birth, if you will. There will come a day when all the world will shout for joy to God. All the earth will sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise and say to Him, How awesome are your deeds. Salvation's glorious wake. The glorious wake of the gospel. The power and the train of the ex- and the exploits of our conquering Savior Jesus Christ sweeps up into it far more than just the individual hearts. Now the individual hearts is powerful and amazing and it's the closest personal experience we have to salvation, the salvation of our souls. But the work of God is not limited to this transformation alone. All of creation, Romans declares, and Psalm 66 celebrates, will be caught up in the wake of God's redemption. What a glorious thought. What a glorious future. History future portends, speaks of it, proclaims a day when the power of God to ransom and redeem goes far beyond just an individual experience to encompass the entire environment and the world itself and creation such that the whole existence of redeemed man at that time will serve to give him glory and praise as he alone deserves. Sometimes we get too narrow-minded, too myopic, if you will, thinking only of our own personal experience and pietistically, that is, concerned only with individualistic holiness, retreat from the faithful expectation of the transforming power of the gospel, such as the word proclaims, the future holds. And when we do so, we become a little spiritually introverted. We become less uh, gloriously uh, caught up in the reality of the gospel and more defensive and reclusive and uh, reserved 
and introverted. The Bible has a prescription for this. One of them is simply Psalm 66. Meditate on it. Sing it. And see if it does not build your faith for the power of a gospel that will not just preserve your little heart against the dangers of the day, but will transform this whole world to a glorious environment of effervescent praise to the holiness of God for future eternal one day. Another message we preached recently is Act Like Heirs. That was the title. And I submit the theme of Titus 3 and how do heirs act? Well, if this is our future, it gives us a certain confidence, does it not? How will that affect your prayer life? How does that affect our praise, our proclamation, and yes, our patience if we remember these things? Well, it moves us to a heart of expectation, confidence, and joyful profession. This moves me to point number two, the world towards God. Not only does the scope include all the earth, as we see in verse 1, all the earth again in verse 4, and all peoples, O peoples, called to worship God in verse 8, but there's also a confession that is fitted for their lips. This confession and a phrase is the glory of God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to the Lord, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power. All the earth worships you, sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Psalm 66 prepares us to realize and to proclaim the ideal relationship of all the world the redeemed world toward God, and it not only includes a scope of all the earth, but also includes a confession, and that confession is the glory of God. In a phrase, this, this uh, notion, this concept, this ideal, this value, this motto, the glory of God, is a dividing line. It's, it truly does separate the popular notions that we gravitate to in our sin, and even are tempted to indulge in the believer's experience in the way we construct church and our ministries these days, and biblical Christianity. It is so easy to design our lives and to pursue things that basically benefit our experience. But the passionate cry and the chief value, the highest end, as the confessions themselves say, and Psalm 66 declares, is not our experience or even our personal salvation as such, but instead the glory of God that is manifest through these things. If we love the glory of the Lord more than our own selves, we can endure a lot. And how, again, does that affect our praise, our proclamation, our patience, and our prayers? It moves us to offer to the Lord the joy, the praise, the awesome recounting of His deeds that He so deserves. And as we do so, as we crucify the flesh that looks for ways to Christianize our self-indulgence, as we crucify that and seek the glory of the Lord and focus our attention on things that magnify and serve Him, it totally turns our perspective 180 degrees and allows the church of Jesus Christ to be the church of Jesus Christ. There's some illustrations of the awesome deeds of the Lord in this first section as well, and the world needs to know about these. Psalm 66 prepares us to realize 
and celebrate the ideal relationship of the world to God, a world that is that honors, remembers, and proclaims the things that God has done. For instance, verse 5, Come and see what God has done. It's the call. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. What has He done? Verse 6, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him. Verse 7, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, say law. There's some examples of awesome deeds of the Lord that are given here. And the first one is the crossing of the Red Sea. Come see what the Lord has done. Look through the annals of history and recognize the power of God in the experience of man. And exhibit A is this. His awesome deeds toward the children of man when he turned the sea into dry ground. When the waters parted and a path was made for the deliverance of God's people to escape the pursuing armies of the Egyptians and to be well on their way to the promised land. What happened? That same sea, under the authority of God through his agent Moses, collapsed on all God's enemies. And when it did so, we are reminded of the Lord whose might rules forever in verse 7, and whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let, them not, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. What a lesson the nation of Egypt learned that day. They exalted themselves in their rebellion, and they were sovereignly led by the Lord into the waters of judgment until they got far enough that they would all be drowned and the sea under the sovereign hand of God collapsed. This moment was the deliverance of God's people and the destruction of their enemies all in one event. This will happen again. It will happen in history future. There will be a mighty deliverance in the second great, the resurrection, the final resurrection, and where our bodies are joined with our spirits and we are ushered into the presence of God in full manifest salvation, but there will also be a judgment that day. In all of God's enemies who refuse to bow to Him as the only way of salvation, the lake of fire will collapse on them. And on that day, the awesome deeds of the Lord will be recapitulated in deliverance and in destruction of His enemies. You see the awesome deeds recorded in history past? They speak to history future. This idea I've used a term before called event oracle to explain. There's a purpose in the events of Scripture. They teach us of the nature and working of God. They are an event that happened in history, but they are oracle. They are a proclamation, a word that speaks to the way that God moves in His redemptive plan. History is replete in the Scriptures with these examples, not just the Red Sea, but the crossing of the Jordan. As we go on in verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the river on foot. So from the Red Sea to the Jordan River, that is from deliverance unto promises, the awesome deeds of the Lord faithfully guided his people into his plan for their salvation. This is the character of revelation revealed in the experience of the children of Israel. And the world needs to realize these great awesome deeds. And as it acknowledges God's sovereign hand in history past and history future, 
It will change the relationship of the peoples to God. And as they bow before the one who holds their future in the palm of his hands, they will in fear, and if they trust in the Lord in faith, shout for joy unto him and bring glory to his name, singing his praises and announcing his awesome deeds that have been accomplished and that have been prophesied and therefore will happen in history future. Secondly, this morning, Psalm 66 prepares us to realize, to celebrate, to proclaim the ideal relationship of God toward His people. And this happens in three ways we see, or this is evident in three terms, perhaps in verses 9 through 12. First of all, salvation. Secondly, purification. And thirdly, abundance. 66.9 Who has kept our soul among the living? I should back up to verse 8. Bless our Lord, or bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard. Now listen, this is the God who, in verse 9, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. This is the relationship of God to His people. He has reached out to us as we were teetering on the precipice of this cliff in a raging wind with no footing, blind, groping in the darkness. And here we are in this picture about to tumble to our doom and the hand of the Lord restrains our fall, keeps us grounded in Him and does not let our feet slip into what we deserve, judgment for our sin. He has kept our soul instead among the living. He has brought regeneration to our hearts and introduced into our life resurrection power and He will resurrect our body in the same way thus keeping us among the living. This is the relationship that Psalm 66 celebrates of God to His people. He has not let our foot slip. I'm reminded of Psalm 56, which celebrates similar themes at its crescendo and closing. The psalmist says, David, in this case, verse 12, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. He gives a reason, verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the relationship of God to His people. It is evident in His salvation, which is poetically dramatized in these passages by terms and ideas like delivering us from certain death keeping our feet upon a rock, keep them from slipping to their doom, and then unto something, unto walking in a way that's pleasing to Him, lighting our path and bringing life into our experience and allowing us to bring the life of Christ into the experience of others. This is the relationship, the evidence, the power, the effect of God's relationship to His people evident in salvation. Secondly, purification. The the psalmist gives, I think, six ways to illustrate this and spends some time upon this in his psalm. Verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. 
you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. You see, we have salvation featured and pictured, and now we have the process of purification or sanctification, if you will. And this is the expectation, not in dreadful tones, but instead understanding its value that is heralded in Psalm 66. That is, God has tested us, the author proclaims, and He has done so thoroughly and completely. And it is a difficult process indeed. It is described in these terms, silver that is tried. For silver to be tried, it must be heated beyond its capacity to remain solid. It becomes a liquid, and under those extreme conditions, in heat, and in that environment of of its molten state, it is separated from that which does not belong. The dross rises to the surface, and the metallurgist, maybe that's what they're called, is able to take that away, and thus the silver is purified. Now this process of intense purification is the picture that is utilized time again in Scripture to describe the Lord working on our life to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, His Son. There is value in it. Do not be discouraged. Embrace it for what it is. More than this, it is also described as a net, meaning there are times in our life of temporal captivity where we cannot free ourselves from the experience of things that clutch onto us And it seems the more we struggle, if we stretch this poetic analogy just a bit, the more we are entangled. Yet in a net such as this, God teaches us not to rely on ourselves and our ability to free ourselves and walk in uprightness before Him, but instead to cry out in in continued dependence on His delivering hand, pull us free from this net. You see, the people of God may well have realized for 400 plus years that they were not slaves ultimately in their identity, but they certainly were slaves in their experience for generations. Who could deny it? The faithless might say, let's just be resolved, we are slaves. The identity of this people has been redefined by the fate of history. Hello, only a fool would would deny this. No, only the faithful would deny this. Because the power and promises of God are more certain than your present experience. You may be tempted to submit to the slavery of the issues in your life that seem to hold you back in your sin and so on. But God is calling you out of Egypt according to the power of His delivering hand and His promises. He will disentangle you from the net of whatever has tied you down. And this is the picture. There is a crushing burden that was placed on the backs of the children of Israel during this time. We see an expansion of the awesome deeds of the Lord, even given here in the experience of those who endured for a time underneath the crushing burdens of slavery and so on. And the men were allowed to ride over the heads of the people. Headship is a position of dominance and leadership. And for a time, those who were called actually to represent the Lord and leadership and dominion were under the oppressors and the tyrants who trod upon them. But this circumstance would change. It wasn't without purpose, however. His people are purified under such conditions. And finally, we went through fire and through water. And these two 
examples or pictures of purification are cross-referenced in Numbers 31-23 where the spoils of war are actually sent through fire and water after the plunder of the Midian, plundering of the Midianite armies according to God's law. So those things that were gathered from the pagans are appropriate for use in God's holy realm when they are sanctified They are passed through the cleansing agents of both fire and water. And in this picture, we have something of our own experience. We are plucked out of the pagan world of our sin. And in order for the Lord to render us useful in His holy realm, He passes us through trial, through the fire and water of trials, as it were, in our own sanctification process, and thereby deepening our faith, strengthening our resolve, encouraging and perfecting the maturity of our confession. According to the book of James, we see this. What are the purpose of trials? After all, to work inside us hope, perseverance. It does not disappoint. also says in Romans, but deepens the roots of our faith into the living water of the Holy Spirit supply, earning for Christ a more valuable tool to proclaim His name. This is the relationship of God toward His people. So do not shirk in your faith from the promises of God if you find yourself in a time such as this. But celebrate with the psalmist that these times of trial and testing have purpose. And what can we expect at the other end of them? Verse 12 tells us as much, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. The relationship of God toward His people is one of salvation sanctification, as we've just described, and abundant blessing that no eye can see, no ear has heard, no mind can ultimately conceive of its glorious wealth when it dawns on us in God's history, future, in glory, in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth one day. So you see in this proclamation in Psalm 66, in this song, the relationship of God toward His people, a certain progression, deliverance, wilderness, and abundant promise. This was the experience of the children of Israel. This is the experience of us as individual believers in salvation. This is the experience of the New Testament church. It's deliverance, and then it's a time of wilderness, which is testing and proclamation. The awesome deeds of the Lord are proclaimed. This testing time is producing fruit for the kingdom unto abundant, fulfilled promises. And this is the way that God has chosen to reveal Himself and to bring us along in His plan of redemption. And it is glorious indeed. Thirdly, Psalm 66 prepares us to realize, to celebrate, and proclaim the ideal relationship of the believer toward God. What is the right response for us in light of all of this? Well, using everything at His disposal at this time in covenant history, the author of Psalm 66 overflows with plans and his purpose and goals to worship the Lord with all the tools at his disposal. And he tells us this in verses 13 through 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats, say law. Now in the language of covenantal history, what we have just heard is a description, an illustration of lavish 
praise. These sacrifices and these offerings that he is bringing from the overflow of the bounty that God has blessed him with is a gesture of appreciation, gratitude, and worship performing his vows before the Lord in worship and overflow of adoration and praise. This is the particular instance of the general proclamation at the beginning. There will be nations, peoples, and all the earth that is called to shout for joy, bring glory to His name, recount His awesome deeds, to worship Him, to sing His praise. And how do we do so? We do so by laying down our life in New Testament language, taking up our cross and following Him. The New Covenant equivalent of what I've just read to you is Romans 12 verse 1. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice, yes, indeed, an offering, which is only our reasonable service and the thing we long to do once we have realized and appreciated the glories of salvation revealed in Romans 1 through chapter 11. And so we bring our offerings and praises to the Lord, our sacrifice of praise, as it were today, not with burnt offerings as it was of old, but with the sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit, a joyful heart of thanksgiving as we consider our great salvation. The obedience that the Christian call requires to walk in a manner worthy of what Christ has done in our heart and life. The Christian life is a call to obedience. It is a vow of sorts to follow Christ wherever He would lead. And He leads us into good works that glorify and advance His name and His kingdom. These good works, of course, we know, do not justify us. Instead, they are the fruit of the worshipful heart who has realized and appreciated the transforming power of the gospel and now seeks to overflow in joy and praise with obedience and a vow to the Lord to magnify and glorify Him through these means. There are three terms used to describe this, His house. We come into His house. Again, Zion, the temple, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. There's a phrase I associate with all those pictures in the Old Testament, and that phrase is this, the conditions of favor and fellowship satisfied in Christ. The conditions of favor and fellowship with God Almighty, a holy God, satisfied in Christ. This is what it means to come into His house. Now the conditions of favor and fellowship involved animal sacrifice then. Now they are freely available for us in the sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so in Jesus Christ, the conditions of favor and fellowship with the Holy God have been satisfied in Him. And so we come, as the psalmist did, into His house. Once inside, that is the fellowship of the Beloved, the condition or the favor and fellowship of the Lord and the, the uh, parameters and citizenship of His kingdom, we, we then make our vows. And these are the promises of God lived out in the faithful expectation and obedience of the saints. Think of the definition again of faith last week. That faith is the dependence on, or it's the belief in and the acting on the power and the promises of God. And then the last uh, picture is this sacrifice and offering of which we've already mentioned, reminding us that upon the sacrifice of Christ, our obedience is our reasonable service as we give of ourselves, not indulging ourselves, but giving of ourselves 
Godward service. Not seeking Him for personal gain, but seeking how we can lay down ourselves for His gain, for His glory. Psalm 66 proclaims this relationship of the believer toward his God. And finally, in our passage today, Psalm 66 prepares us to realize, to celebrate, and to proclaim the ideal relationship of the believer to the world. 16 through 20. Come and hear, all you who fear God. And notice this is a summons to those who are onlookers in the distant lands who have not seen as of yet, perhaps, the awesome deeds of the Lord in the same way the psalmist has learned of them and experienced them himself. But he knows one way he can glorify God is to proclaim, to announce, to share, like a great commission call to tell the world of Christ's awesome deeds. And so he calls forth, he says, Come and hear all you who fear God. The intended audience is all who have ears to hear. The intended audience is all who we have privilege of coming in contact with. We proclaim for the glory of God to all mankind as He provides the opportunity. Come and hear, come and see, bless our God. Come and hear all you who fear God. Come and see what God has done, verse 5. Bless our God, O peoples. Come and see, come and hear, bless our God, O peoples, all who fear Him. This is the intended audience of the believer as he approaches the world, as he steps out of the reality of his personal salvation unto great commission faithfulness. He proclaims the work of God in his own changed life, experience and testimony. And more than this, the Word of God, come and hear, he shouts to the world. The message is this, I will tell what he has done for my soul. Verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God. What is the message? I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. And so he is going to explain what God has done in his life to all who are willing to listen. What will he tell them? He will tell them, no doubt, verses 9 through 12, that the Lord has kept his soul among the living, and has prevented his feet from slipping into the judgment his pravity deserved. And though his life is marked by testing, a trial like silver and not a crushing burden at times, a riding over of the head and fire and water, yet there is an abundance of blessing that is expected, and he has brought us out and through this unto the promises of everything Christ's blood was shed to purchase. This is what he has done for the soul of the psalmist. And so he proclaims to all who will come and hear. And thirdly, the believer, his relationship toward the world. The, uh, the explanation of this is proclaimed in the cause, the final cause. What has done this? Who, who is responsible for this great work or of his soul transformation? And the rest of the chapter celebrates this. I cried to him with my mouth, the psalmist says. High praise was on my tongue. He says in 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God. 
because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. He's giving an individual example again of the general call in the beginning. What sorts of things do we say as a redeemed people when we shout for joy to God, the God of all the earth, when we bring glory to his name? The sorts of things we say are related to these thoughts. He is blessed because he has not rejected my prayer. He has not removed his steadfast love from me. He is the cause of my feet's security, not slipping to their judgment. He is the cause and he is the source of the transformation of my soul. His steadfast love has granted me the endurance to live through and to trust that there is purpose in the testing of silver net and burden, the riding over the heads of fire and water that he prescribes to purify his own. And this is the heart of the believer to the world. This is his message. He proclaims it to all with ears to hear, and he recognizes that it is the sovereignty of God that has accomplished these very things that he has experienced in his personal life. There is an application for these things that I want to leave you with today. Come and see what? Come and hear with. Bless our God for what? When you worship the Lord, when you process the word and the message that you hear each Sunday, when you open your scriptures daily, when you share in family worship, what are you doing? You are adding to yourself tools. You are granting to yourself a deeper well from which to draw to offer praise to the Lord and worship and call the world to come and see. So dig deeply into the Scriptures. Think intently on the preached Word. Meditate on the things of God and set your affections upon His great work of redemption. Therefore, and by and in so doing, when you call to the world, come and see, you will have that much more to show them. And when you step into the assembly to offer your praise to the Lord, you'll have that much more to offer. You see the heart of the psalmist, don't you? Don't you? He wishes he were richer, had more flocks, no doubt. Why? Had even more precious, spotless, blameless, fatted lambs to give. Not because of his own coffers, not for his own merit and standing and influence and security, but no, to offer to the Lord as praise. This is the material picture of the spiritual reality. As you enrich yourself in the truth of God, you have more to offer Him in praise and to call the world to come and see. A final thought I'd like to leave you with. It's a quote from Thomas Fuller. Who knows what a syllogism is? Just in case you need to brush up on your Greek logical terminology, a syllogism is basically a premise and then a case, if the premise is true, then X must be true. You put them together and you get the conclusion. It's just a, a line of reasoning. That's what a syllogism is. <clears throat> There's a syllogism that Thomas Fuller calls our attention to at the end of Psalm 66. And it surprises him because the conclusion is different than the one he expected. Listen, the psalmist says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So here, the syllogism goes like this, as you would see it on the face of it at first. Okay, if there's wickedness in me, God will not hear me. God has heard me, therefore, 
There is no wickedness in me. That would be the logical conclusion, right? Well, notice there is a break from classical logic, as it were. Thomas Fuller notes this, and this is a powerful gospel revelation. Listen to what he says. Lord, I find David making a syllogism in mood and figure. Two propositions he perfected. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me, he hath attended to the voice of my prayer. He says, Now I expected that David should have concluded thus. Therefore I regard not wickedness in my heart. But far otherwise he concludes. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. And here's the real highlightable quote. Thus David had deceived, but not wronged me. In other words, I was misled by David's logic, but he had not wronged me. I looked that he should have clapped the crown on his own. I was expecting David to put the crown on his own head. Uh, If there was wickedness in my heart, God would not hear me. God heard me. Therefore, crown on my head. There is no wickedness in me. That is not the case. Instead of clapping the crown on his own, he puts it on God's head. I will learn this excellent logic, Thomas Fuller says. For I like David's better than Aristotle's syllogisms, that whatsoever the premise be, I make God's glory the conclusion. Whatsoever the premise be, may we make God's glory the conclusion. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we thank you for the exhortation, the encouragement, and the faith-building reality that is contained in the riches of your Holy Scripture. Let us sing in our hearts Psalm 66, its thoughts and meditations this week, and may it produce fruit, I pray, for the believers in this room, unto a depth, a deepening well from which to draw offerings of praise to you and a compilation of your great deeds to point to and call the world to come and hear and come and see. And also, Lord, I pray that this word that we have heard from your scriptures today would move upon the hearts of any who do not know you, that they may confess their utter dependence in salvation and repentance and your power to save alone that they may soon join us and confess that it is the steadfast love of Christ alone that hears, <clears throat> that is the reason our prayers are heard and that keeps our feet from falling. Lord, by the power of that steadfast love, would you keep us this week and would you equip us to, to obediently glorify your name in that which you have called us to do for your, for your kingdom? And would you, by the power of that steadfast love, Gather us again next week to joyfully recount your faithfulness to us those seven days. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.